This morning I'd like to read some scripture together, so if you would read along with me with the scripture that we're going to put up on the board. We're going to read Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, and 5 through 8. Verse 1 says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is the mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times. O people, pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. This week, as I knew Randy was going to continue with the series about questions that God asks, and today he was going to be talking about the questions that he posed to his disciples when he asked them, what do you want? And as I shared with first service, I'm one of those really stubborn people that a lot of times something just recurs on my heart, and I think that's God talking, but I'm not quite sure, and if I'm busy, I just tune it out. And this week, over and over, the same thing kept getting put on me. And so I thought, you know what, I better write this down because I think there's a message here. So I wondered to myself, which do I spend more time doing? Asking God what I want, the materialistic things, the quick fixes, not to have to go through suffering. Or do I ask him what he wants for me? I know exactly for me when I discovered the difference between those two questions. When I was about six months pregnant with our second child, all I cared about was that this child was healthy and that this child would go to full term. I would pray for God and ask him to keep her safe, to bring her into our lives so that we could teach her to love him. But God's plan was bigger than my plan. I spent a lot of my life praying, especially in my adult life, like God was a genie in a bottle. And whenever I needed something or I didn't want to go through what I was faced with, I could rub him and he would pop out and just answer my prayer. But the problem with that is I wanted him to go back in the bottle and turn his head when I was doing something I knew he didn't want me to do. But genie, God is no genie. He had bigger plans for me. I may have prayed for a healthy baby to love, but at some point... I probably would have even taken that for granted and stopped continuing to thank him every day. My desire was short-sighted, but God's desire was far-sighted. He knew that by burying my child, I would learn how to solely rely on him for guidance. I would know what it was like to be so broken that no one but God could put me back together. I would grow a heart that desired to support other families who'd gone through the same loss. He knew that it would bring my family closer together, and above all, that I would learn that God still loves me even through the hard things. So even though I still miss my baby Whitney every single day, I can now thank God for the wonderful life he's able to give her. I can praise him through song, because I've seen him reconstruct the pieces of my own life and do an even bigger and better one than I could have ever imagined. So I hope now, 
when you hear the question, what do you want? That you'll examine your heart and add two words to the end of that phrase. What do you want from me? Ask that question of God, what he wants. So as you think about these questions, sing this next song as a prayer. You might feel like you are light years away from where God wants you to be, but it's never too late to ask him to draw you closer to him because that's where he wants us to be. You taught me a lot in that video about uh, something I want to talk about today regarding, um, well, you know, there's what, there's what I want and then there's what God wants, right? And there's my plans and then there's God's plans. And, um, and thus the question for today that Jesus asks, what do you want? What do you want? And I want us to consider that question today because it really just goes deeper than uh, simply our desires. It has to do with what do you want? What do you want in Jesus? What kind of a Jesus are you wanting? And we're going to see that, uh, well, we're just going to see that the Jesus that many people want simply doesn't exist. All right? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1, the New Testament book of John chapter 1, and you'll find that on page 750 in your church Bibles. And um, the question for today, what do you want, is found in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. In these verses, we're going to see that uh, Jesus is calling his, his disciples is early on in his ministry, and five disciples are called in these verses. We'll meet them. I'll just tell you who they are right now. One of them is the Apostle John. He is unnamed in these verses. Uh, you'll see John the Baptist, but not the Apostle John. You'll see Andrew. Uh, then you'll see Andrew's brother, Simon, who is Peter, Simon Peter. And then you'll see Philip, and then you'll see Nathaniel, Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel, um, many scholars say, uh, is another name for Bartholomew, Bartholomew, who was one of the twelve. So there they are, John, uh, Andrew, uh, Simon Peter, Philip, and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel. And Jesus calls them in these verses to be his disciples. And it's in this calling that we hear this question, what do you want? So let's read these verses in John 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist now, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, here's the question, what do you want? There it is. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Now that's four o'clock in the afternoon. The 10th hour is four in the afternoon. 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this is God's word. What do you want? What do you want? Jesus asks, and it's, it's a pretty penetrating question. It's a question that strikes at the heart of our motives and who we are and why we do what we do and what, what we are looking for. What are you really seeking when you seek Jesus? What are you looking for? And What I want us to see as we consider these verses this morning, um, what I want to do this morning is I want us to talk a little bit about us and our world, and then I want to talk about Christ and and His truth. That's what I want to do. I have two uh, truths that I want to share with you this morning. The first is about our world, about, about us. Maybe it's about you. Maybe. And that truth is simply this. You're looking for Jesus? What do you want? Well, let let me tell you. The Jesus, the Jesus our world really wants just doesn't exist. It doesn't. And I'm going to unpack that and explain that here in just a moment. And that takes us to the bigger truth this morning. And it's this. The Jesus who really exists He knows what you want. He knows what you want better than you know what you want. How can that be? We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. You may surprise some of you. You're not the expert in what you want. But there is one who is. And we'll see why. The Jesus you really want doesn't exist. But the Jesus who really exists knows what you want 
better than you. That's where we're going this morning. Let's unpack this first truth, okay? The Jesus you really want doesn't exist. Uh, I read a fascinating book this past week. It was actually just recently published, and it discusses this very point here, this, this Jesus that um, has been manufactured in America, this made-in-the-USA Jesus. And the book that I'm thinking about is written by a columnist from the New York Times, a guy by the name of Ross Douthat. Ross Douthat. Ross Douthat is uh, the youngest regular columnist that the New York Times has ever had in the history of uh, its paper. And uh, the title of the book that he has written concerning this made in the USA Jesus, the title of the book is called Bad Religion, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. So it's not a really cheerful book, um, but it it has a penetrating critique about um, Americanized versions of Jesus. And I think it's worth a read, and I think it's worth considering some of the made-in-the-USA Jesuses that have appeared across the landscape of our culture. And I just want to mention three of those pseudo-Christs, because at the end of the day, Douthat says, that G- those Jesus they don't exist. He talks first about the Da Vinci Jesus, the Da Vinci Jesus, uh, Dan Brown's Jesus, the Da Vinci Code, you know, this Jesus who is very modern, this Jesus uh, who is very worldly, this Jesus uh, who uh, is a wise sage, uh, who is a feminist, who is, has wife and kids and lives in the suburbs of Galilee, this Jesus who was a peasant rabbi, and this Jesus who died, and that was the end of his story, except that his disciples were so thrilled with his teachings that, you know, they just kind of, you know, continued the spirit of this peasant rabbi Jesus uh, to the degree that, well, you know how, you know, you know how fishermen are, they catch a fish, and then the fish keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger the more the story is told about how they caught the fish. And that's sort of what happened with this Jesus, that, that over the decades, why the, 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 this, this peasant rabbi kind of morphed into this uh, divine, mythical, uh, 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 son of God type of figure. And the Gospels, which came to us, uh, I think I've got a chart of uh, when the Gospels were written. Uh, um, most scholars come to the conclusion that, say, Matthew was written between 80, 65 to 85, Mark 60 to 75, Luke 65 to 95, John 75 to 100 AD. And then, you know, they concern about the life of Christ who lived 30 to 33 AD. And so during those decades, You know, the fish just got bigger. And this peasant rabbi kind of morphed into this divine son of God person. And that's that's the da Vinci Jesus, you see. Now, I have to tell you, there's something really attractive about that kind of Jesus. Something very attractive, and here's what it is. That Jesus doesn't require anything of me. 
that Jesus is like a, is like a, just an old book, or an old flannel shirt, a pair of khakis, it just gets softer and softer as the years go, and I can take it off the shelf and thumb through it when I'm kind of wanting to be inspired by something, I've had a bad day, but at the end of the day, I just kind of put that Jesus back on the bookshelf and get on to what else I want to do. That Jesus requires nothing of me, this peasant rabbi that kind of morphed into this divine-like figure. That's the Da Vinci Jesus. It's an American-made Jesus, to be sure. Here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. The Gospels, though they were written, uh, let's go back up and see that chart again. Though the Gospels are written uh, in, in that time period, those are not the oldest Christian documents in the New Testament. Did you know that? Even though they concern the life of Christ, 30 to 33 AD, those aren't the oldest Christian documents. The oldest Christian documents come from the Apostle Paul. I'm thinking of First and Second Corinthians. I'm thinking of Philippians. And, and there are paragraphs and sections within those letters that are actually very, very, very early, which tell us what the early Christians actually believed about Jesus. And I can tell you this, they did not believe that he was merely a peasant rabbi. Why, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul quotes an early Christian hymn. Philippians chapter 2 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, and here's the hymn, who being in very nature God, doesn't sound like a peasant rabbi to me. And then what about 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised. That's a bodily resurrection we're talking about. Not just a spirit of one's teaching that kind of continues to infiltrate the atmosphere. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a dead man that came back alive. That's who we worship. So you have to ask yourself, though, what do you want? See, do you want are, you, are you looking for Dan's Jesus or Jesus? <laughs> See, Well, there's another Jesus on the American scene. And, you know, it's amazing how uh, these versions of Jesus uh, make their way to the silver screen. And they have a powerful effect upon the mindset of our culture. I'm thinking of the eat, pray, love Jesus. The eat, pray, love Jesus. That's Elizabeth Gilbert's Jesus. This Jesus who tells you to be true to your heart because how could your heart ever be wrong? This Jesus is both divine butler and cosmic therapist. Always on call, takes care of any problem that arises, and professionally helps his people feel better about themselves. And, and what the eat, pray, love Jesus does is reveal something also startling about our culture. You see, it used to be in our culture that the, you know, the, the important question on the table was, and especially in World War II with the Third Reich and the Japanese Empire, the, the, the question on the table was, do I have the courage to do what's right? Do I have the courage to do what's right? That question is no longer on the table anymore. 
The question that's on the table anymore is, do I have the courage to just follow my own heart? <laughs> See, what I want. Uh, Gilbert herself says, God dwells within you as yourself exactly the way you are. That's bold. Somewhere within all of us, there does exist a supreme self who is eternally at peace. And then Gilbert says, her highest duty is to honor the divinity that resides within me. Wow. Wow. The eat, pray, love Jesus. There is a little wrinkle in that Jesus. You know what it is, don't you? When two people who both think they're God get married, <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> so you have to ask yourself, what do you want? What do you want? You want Dan's Jesus? Do you want Elizabeth's Jesus? Do you want Joel's Jesus? That's the third pseudo-Jesus that Ross Douthat talks about, the, the prosperity Jesus, the, the, the health and wealth, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel Jesus. And it's of concern because, uh, and I learned this this week, the, of the 250 largest congregations in America, 60 of those, nearly a fourth, are prosperity gospel congregations. Wow. Where, where every Sunday, a pastor stands up and says, you've got to name it and claim it, and you've just, to, to, to achieve it, you've got to believe it, and You've got to have more faith, and God wants you wealth. One, one, one pastor put it this way. Of course Jesus was rich. Why else would he have a treasurer? What do you want? What do you want, you see? See, the problem is when we focus on the when we focus on the Da Vinci Jesus or the Eat Pray Love Jesus or the Prosperity Jesus or any other Jesus other than the Jesus that we find in the script. Well, when we when we focus on these versions of Jesus, these American-made Jesus, then, then then we we're blinded to who the real Jesus is, the Jesus that John the Apostle speaks about in the very first chapter. Well, who is that Jesus? Well, my goodness. My goodness, listen to all of these descriptors as to Jesus in John chapter 1 alone. Just go back up to verse 1. Who is Jesus? John 1, 1, the Word. Look at verse 5, the light. Look at verse 18. Who is Jesus? God, the one and only. And then the list goes on. Uh, there's uh, Jesus, the Messiah, verses 20. 
and 41. There's the prophet, verse 21. Then there's just Jesus, verse 29. There's Jesus, the Lamb of God, verses 29 and 36. There's Jesus who baptizes with the Spirit, verse 33. There's Jesus, the Son of God, verse 34. Uh, Verses 38 and 49, Jesus, rabbi, teacher. Verse 41, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 45, the son of Joseph. Verse 45, the Nazarene. Verse 49, the son of God. Verse 49, the king of Israel. Verse 51, the son of man. I mean, that's just John chapter 1. Church family, you will not find uh, another chapter in the New Testament with such a full list of descriptors of our Savior as in John chapter 1. And that's just the beginning. It's as if John chapter 1 is just just a prelude of of how all of these attributes are going to be unfolded as his gospel is told. And the point is this. If this is who Jesus really is, and I believe it is, wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense to assume that he knows what I want more than I do? So, so, the Jesus who's made in America really doesn't exist, but the Jesus of Scripture, he does, and he knows what I want more than I do. Well, what is it that he says I want? Well, here's, here's what you want. What you really want, what you really, really want at the end of the day is to leave your puny little kingdom of one for another kingdom that's by far grander and eternal and full of glory. That's what you really want. And so the real king summons you to leave yourself for him. And that's what we see happening here. Here you have a king who unashamedly says to his disciples, I want you to walk away from your lives and I want you to follow me. Come and see. Follow me. Leave your fishing vocation, your tax collecting vocation. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It was shocking. Jesus called his disciples away from their normal, cultural, familial obligations. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me, Jesus said. And even those who were not called to leave their hometowns and vocations, Jesus Christ sent them back to their towns and vocations with the message of all that he had done for them. I'm thinking of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. So what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging, uh, you know, are you going to just hang around me and like me and admire me? Or are you going to follow me? Are you going to be a disciple? Are you going to be a student? You see. You're going to be part-time or full-time, you see. And that's a question that he asks of us. Some of you have been here for several months now, and you're just kind of observing from the C-section, and Jesus says, I want you up on stage here. When are you going to stop being a fan and start becoming a follower? When is that going to happen? And some might protest, "Well, well, what if he tells me something I won't like? Well, of course he's going to tell you something you won't like. What's the point of being a king? That's what a king does. He rules. He he is going to tell you something you won't like. Of course. Can you imagine if your child were uh, being recruited by a, a Big Ten athletic team and 
child sits at the table, sits across the table, there's the head coach, and your child says, well, I'll be more than happy to play on your team as long as we agree in writing that, uh, you know, um, I have to like everything you tell me to do. Where do I sign? That's not going to happen. That's the point of a coach. To make that athlete do what that athlete wouldn't do on his own or her own. Jesus says, come and see. Look at this, Look at this list again that we read here in John chapter 1. My goodness, Messiah, prophet, one who baptizes with the Spirit, king of Israel. Is this someone that you want as your personal assistant? He doesn't want to be admired. He wants to be worshipped. Now follow me. Jesus says, and his call is never about yourself. The call is not to find yourself. The call is to lose yourself for his sake. And so Jesus makes it very clear. You will never find out what you want by passionately pursuing what you want. You will only find out what you want by passionately pursuing him who knows what you want better than you and who wants you to leave your puny little kingdom of one for his eternal kingdom. And when you leave yourself for him, then you learn what you want. Oh, the psalmist put it this way in Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What do you want? Well, I'll tell you something else. The real Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, the real Jesus is someone who redefines your identity. And isn't that what you really want? Isn't it? Huh? Do you notice how Jesus renamed Simon into Peter? Before Simon becomes Peter. Verse 42. And Andrew brought him to Jesus. And Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. That verb looked at him is a strong verb. It means to to give a penetrating gaze. To look deeply. Jesus' eyes just penetrated through Peter's life. And he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So he calls Peter, he calls Simon into Peter, and then he helps him become the person he calls him to be. Only God can do that. Peter means rock. I'm going to call you Rocky. That's who he is. Rocky. But you know, you know if you've read the gospel that well, at least at this point, Peter is anything but Rocky. Peter is anything but Peter. <laughs> and Jesus knew that. He knows that. So, in fact, he knew when he called him, he knew that he was going to deny him three times. He knew that he was going to run scared for his life. He knew that. He knew that he was going to need to reinstate him. And he also knew... He also knew that Peter was going to give this incredibly powerful message on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 gave their lives to Christ and were baptized. Jesus knew that as well. And he also knew that Peter would be one of the authors of the New Testament, First and Second Peter. And so he calls him. He calls him, and then he makes him into the person that he calls him to be. And he does that for you 
and for me as well. And so the question is, are you, are you just resigned to stuckness? Is that it? Is your favorite store Stuckies? What? Is your mantra, well, this is as good as it gets? Really? Really? Jesus says, no. No. I have a future for you. Come and see. Follow me. Now, what do you want? What do you want? And then the real Jesus, the real Jesus, he knows you deeply and he still wants you. He does. This is where we get to Bartholomew or Nathaniel. So Philip calls Nathaniel. Says, we found the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph, verse 46. Nazareth, what, can anything good come from there? Philip says, come and see. And the first words out of Christ's mouth He sees Nathanael. He says, now here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Literally, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathanael was a a what you see is what you get kind of person. And he just is a, I'm just a, here I am. There's, There's no pretense at all. It's just all of his cards were out on the table and turned face up and Jesus said, wow, this is a true Israelite. And Nathaniel's impressed. How do you know me? Verse 48. And then Jesus said something that totally rocked Nathaniel's world. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. What was he doing underneath the fig tree? What was it? It couldn't have been anything casual. It had to be something personal and private. Some scholars think that maybe he was studying the law and studying the, the prophecies about the Messiah. That's what teachers of the law did underneath such trees. And now there's Jesus who saw him. And, you know, what would Jesus need to say to you that was so personal and so private that would make you leave everything and then follow him. What is that? You know, we spend a lot of our time trying to, trying to cover up, trying to hide our faults and foibles, trying to keep people from seeing the real us, the real me, because if you saw the real me, then you may not like the real me, and I don't know if I could take that kind of rejection, but Jesus saw the real Nathaniel, and he sees the real you, and he knows you, And he saw you when you were underneath that tree too. And how many different kinds of trees have we been under? Huh? Some of you were under a tree of worries last week. And I challenged you, I challenged you to be as generous to God with your worries as you have been with your wallet. And this church family is very generous with their wallet but I challenged you to be generous with your worries and you came through. And just one of these pieces of paper felt like a boulder on your backs and all of these pieces of paper are less than a feather on the shoulder of our king. Jesus saw you underneath that tree 
underneath the tree of worries. He saw you underneath the tree of that bottle. He saw you underneath the tree of that needle, underneath the tree of that bed, underneath the tree of that knife. He sees you and he knows you and he still wants you. He still loves you. And we may feel impressed that he knows us and loves us, but Jesus almost snickers in verse 50. (laughs) You believe because I told you I saw you underneath the fig tree? You haven't seen anything yet, mister. (laughs) You shall see greater things than that. And then verse 51, then he added, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Now, uh, literally, those are the words, amen, 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 amen. Now, this is interesting because, you see, when do we say amen? At the end of a prayer, right? And, and, and we say amen because we are affirming the prayer or when we hear a, a good message or a good lesson from the Bible, we conclude with amen and Usually it's the listener that says amen back to the teacher. At the conclusion, after they've heard it, and then they affirm it. But look what Jesus does. Jesus says, he begins with amen, amen. And he says it twice. And he says it before he says anything else. He doesn't say it at the conclusion. He says it at the beginning. Whoa, that doesn't sound like a peasant rabbi to me. That sounds like a king. And then he says, amen, amen. You shall see heaven open. You, that's not in the singular. That's in the plural. It's as if the camera lens is, uh, is doing a panoramic view here. Jesus isn't just talking to Nathaniel. And he's not just talking to the disciples. He's talking to the readers. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, where, where have we heard that? Ascending. Oh, wait a minute. That's Jacob. That's in the book of Genesis. That's at Bethel where Jacob's ladder and the angels ascending and descending. This meeting place between heaven and earth and And now, here, Jesus is telling this person, Nathanael, who is a true Israelite. Remember, Jacob, his name meant deceiver. But Nathanael is no Jacob. He's a true Israelite. And he's telling you that you're going to see heaven. You're going to see the meeting place between heaven and earth. In other words, and where are those angels landing? Not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man Himself, my goodness, Jesus is claiming, even in John chapter 1, that He is the meeting place between heaven and earth. We're talking about the cross. We're talking about the, the, the burial of Christ. We're talking about the resurrection. of This does not sound like a peasant rabbi. This sounds like God in the flesh who gave Himself for you and for me, so that we can enjoy fellowship with the Father. And thus the question, what do you want? What do you want? I'm telling you, church, the maid in the USA Jesus doesn't exist, never has, never will, and is powerless. But this Jesus does, and he's not dead.
He is alive and is the risen king who commands you to come and see, to get off the sidelines, stop being a fan, be a follower. Come. What do you want? I was talking to someone uh, before service started about... uh, for exercise, I like to, I like to go uh, bicycling, cycling. And I mean, I don't wear a uniform or anything like that. I, I look like a garage sale when I'm on my bicycle. If you see a garage sale on two wheels, that's your pastor. Um, Someone wrote, at first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life was rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, predictable, the shortest distance between two points. But when Jesus took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts, up mountains, through rocky places, at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I worried, I was anxious, I asked, where are you taking me? He laughed, and he didn't answer. (laughs) And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life, and I entered into the adventure, and when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again, and then he said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met. And I found that in giving, I received. And still, my burden was light. I didn't trust him, not at first. I did not trust him in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. He knows how to jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to shorten the scary passages. And so I'm just learning to shut up and paddle in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my King, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he smiles and he says, pedal. What do you want? 